Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 132, 10 Apologists' Mistakes About the Trinity, Part 2. Last week we went through the first five mistakes. These were ten. The Trinity doctrine is not obviously contradictory, so problem solved. Number nine was, there has always, or at least since the fourth century, been a single dominant doctrine of the Trinity. Eight was, Trinitarian theology is obviously implied by Scripture. Seven was, the Trinity doctrine is the Christian view about God. Six was, trite, newfangled summaries of the doctrine. Mistake number five is newfangled slogans and grandiose claims. Giving these kind of cheerleading slogans that are popular in a certain genre of popular Christian books nowadays is not helpful to defending the Trinity or to showing someone why they should believe in the Trinity. People will gas out things like, the Trinity and the Gospel are inseparable. Really, do they preach the gospel in the book of Acts? Because the Trinity is not in the book of Acts. There's no talk of a tripersonal God there, three hypostases and one usia. What is there is a simpler and more understandable message. It's the message that all Christians agree on. The Trinity and the gospel are not inseparable because we had the gospel without the Trinity for centuries. And very often, the gospel is presented nowadays without the Trinity. Think about a typical evangelical presentation you might see at a Billy Graham-type rally. Do they preach the triune God, three equally divine persons that share an essence or a nature? They do not. A person might go forward, pray the prayer, talk to the counselor, sign up for some kind of further contact and walk away, and they've never heard of the Trinity. To say that the Trinity and the Gospel are inseparable is either obviously false, if we're talking about the capital T Trinity, that is the triune God of Trinitarian theology. If it's the small t Trinity we mean, it's a trivial point. Yes, the Gospel has to do with God, His Son, and His Spirit, with that triad, with that small t Trinity. Well, sure, Unitarian Christians completely agree with that. But the people sloganizing in this way are meaning to exclude Unitarians or any kind of non-Trinitarians. But it's not a serious claim. Other newfangled slogans and grandiose claims I don't even want to get into. I'll just summarize them by saying that people claim that the Trinity is the key to unlocking all the secrets of Christian theology. Some also urge that it's the key to understanding what makes a successful marriage or how church life should go, or how we can establish a just society or the right kind of government. Of course, none of this was touted by historical Trinitarians, whether we're talking the 4th century, or the 10th century, or the 13th century, or the 15th century, or the 17th century. They weren't making these claims. This is just talk. It's not serious. Mistake number four dubious proofs of the Trinity from reason. They usually nowadays take this form. God is love, therefore God is a Trinity. It sure would be nice if there was a way to show that all non-Christian theologies are incoherent, 
They say that their God is perfect and that God is perfectly loving, but then their views also imply that God is not perfect and he's not perfectly loving. And the reason they imply this is because their God is a single self, a single person. Only a triune God can be love or perfectly loving. On this point, some people are serious, but most aren't. Augustine of Hippo, the ancient North African bishop, gestured at an argument like this in one of his writings. He suggested the father would be somehow deficient, such as greedy or ungenerous, if he didn't eternally generate the son. This type of argument played no role in the formation of the official formulations. You do see an unclear type of argument like this in Augustine, but I'm not aware of anywhere else it is in ancient writings. I'd be surprised to find it anywhere else. You see this type of argument touted by the medieval theologian Richard of St. Victor in his book called On the Trinity. Richard of St. Victor was a Scottish monk who was active in the 12th century. Several years back, my co-bloggers and I at the Trinity's blog did a long series of posts where we went through a lot of these arguments. In my own view, they're not very good arguments. They're fairly slapdash the way they're put together. In my view, the people who have best argued this point are Richard Swinburne and Stephen Davis. These are contemporary, well-respected Christian philosophers. I don't think that those arguments work either, but they have developed them much better than Augustine and much better than Richard of St. Victor. I discussed these arguments in a book chapter of mine called On the Possibility of a Single Perfect Person. What the argument's trying to show is that if you suppose that there is a perfect single self, that that's impossible. And the line of thinking in popular writings is usually, God is perfectly loving, so therefore he must eternally and independently of creation be engaging in the best kind of love. But then there must be another person within the divine nature for God to love. If God was a single person, then apart from creation, he'd only be able to love himself. And that's not the best kind of love, so God wouldn't be perfectly loving. The problem with these arguments is that I think they have a fallacy at their heart. It's this. God is perfectly loving only if God is perfectly loving. If I paraphrase that, I think you'll see why there's a fallacy there. What they mean is that God has the character trait of being a perfectly loving being only if God is actually loving someone else. But of course, you can have the virtue of being a perfectly loving being and not be actually loving anyone else. Because being perfectly loving is a character trait, it's not an action. Imagine that you have a castaway who's abandoned alone on a desert island. Is he an honest guy? Is he disposed such that he will tell the truth to others? He may be an honest guy, but never have a chance to manifest that honesty. Is he compassionate? Is he disposed so as to care about when others are doing poorly? Sure, he might be. But he never actually has a chance to engage in compassionate actions or words while he's a castaway on a lonely desert island. It seems to me these arguments just don't get off the ground at the very first step. Never mind how we get that there are exactly three divine persons. I don't see how you get from one to two. Because I think you could be perfect in every way and be a single divine person. And yes, you could be perfectly loving as a part of that. And I don't think that you would be lonely or inadequate in any other way. 
as far as I know, this is where in the whole history of Christianity you see these type of arguments. In Augustine in the early 5th century, Richard of St. Victor in the 12th century, Richard of Oxford in the 20th and 21st centuries, and a few people inspired by him, like William Lane Craig and Stephen T. Davis. That makes this a tiny minority view among serious Trinitarian thinkers. Why is that? I think it's because it's not a convincing argument. But another reason could be this. The argument seems to make the most sense if the persons of the Trinity really are persons, that is, so many selves. Typically, with a person like Davis or Swinburne, the conclusion of this argument is that there are multiple selves in the one God. If you're a one-self Trinitarian, or if you're the type of Trinitarian who doesn't think that we can to any extent understand how the one God is, and so you just refuse to think of selves there, whether one or three, if you're one of those kinds of Trinitarians, you're not going to like these arguments, because they have an unwelcome conclusion. Their conclusion is, in your view, a wrong-headed way of understanding the standard Trinitarian language. There are other dubious proofs. Sometimes people will riff on some of Augustine's many analogies. Father's like a soul, the son's like his mind, the spirit is his love for himself, things like that. Then people tend to ignore that Augustine thinks that these are all bad analogies. He tries them all out, kind of plays around with them, and then really kind of abandons them. He doesn't think that they're helpful in the end, at least not individually. Number three, flights of speculation about the atonement. I've heard evangelical apologists recently say that unless God himself died for your sins, then the death of Jesus would be cosmic child abuse. What? This seems like a non sequitur. Why couldn't God send his son why couldn't God send someone else to die for your sins and not be thereby engaging in something like child abuse? It's not a child dying. It's somebody who's agreed to the plan, and it's hard to see why this would be abusive in any way. But more to the point, the New Testament does not say that God himself died for your sins. It says that we know how much God loved us because he sent his son to die for our sins. Another claim is that unless God himself died for your sins, or more moderately, unless a fully divine person died for your sins, then Jesus' death could not suffice for all the sins of humanity. I'm sorry, but this is just a wild speculation. The New Testament doesn't say anything like this. It's not self-evident. It's not provable by any compelling argument. Admittedly, the atonement is a difficult subject, and Christians have said different things about it. If you want to think through some of those different things that have been said, I strongly recommend Trinity's podcast episodes 91 and 92, where I discuss this with Christian philosopher Joshua Thoreau. He talks a little bit about where these different approaches come from, when they arose in time, what theoretical and ethical problems they face, and really, you know, what is the Bible teaching about the atonement of Jesus' death? That seems to be the important thing. This idea that the victim of sacrifice had to be infinitely valuable or 
fully divine. Otherwise, that wouldn't be valuable enough to, quote, pay for your sins. This is just not taught in the New Testament, and it wasn't taught anywhere in early Christianity either. As far as I know, this general idea goes back to Anselm, and some related versions of it pick up steam in the Reformation. But this is not going to help to defend an unclear and difficult theory, whatever your understanding of the Trinity is, to pile onto it another speculation about how the atonement works. Let's not try to illuminate the obscure by something that's equally obscure. Mistake number two is confusing the Trinity with the deity of Christ. A lot of evangelical apologists have glommed on to the claim that Jesus is God himself, that they are numerically identical. That's not the Trinity. Arguably, that's not compatible with the Trinity. But anyway, it's not an adequate summary of it. I distinguish between speculations on the deity or the full divinity of Christ and speculations about the Trinity. The idea that Jesus is fully divine, or that means that he has a divine nature in addition to his human nature, you see these speculations really getting going in the latter portion of the second century. It really begins with the rise of Logos theories, that God could not have created directly, but he must have created through this intermediary, and that this is the Logos of John chapter 1, the Word that was eternally with God and was God. And this Logos, they thought, is the same self that we later call Jesus Christ. So the Logos is this pre-existent and later on an eternal divine being. But Jesus wasn't just a God pretending to be a human. He was really a human. So it must be that this Logos somehow associated itself, attached itself, united itself, combined itself somehow with a complete human nature generally described as a body and a rational soul. You see all of this in origin, and the Logos theory speculations go back to Justin Martyr. This isn't the Trinity. There are Unitarians today who agree with this. There are Unitarians in early modern times that agree with this view about Jesus, his pre-existence and his divine nature. There were non-Trinitarian, mainstream Christians, small-c Catholics in the 300s who agree with all this. These are the so-called Arians. They weren't Trinitarians, but they did believe in the deity of Christ in this sense. So the deity of Christ is a doctrine that started to be developed in the 200s, and then it continues to develop on through the 600s. It's a long and interesting series of arguments. The Trinity only dates to around the time of the council at Constantinople in the year 381, and not really much before that, that I can tell. Not the same thing. A closely related confusion is just this, that the doctrine of the Trinity is only four claims. Christ is divine, the Holy Spirit is divine, the Father is divine, and there's only one God. Nope, there's more to Trinitarian theology than that. Those four claims, the deity of Christ, deity of the Holy Spirit, deity of the Father, and there's only one God, those would be agreed to by early modern Unitarian Christians like Samuel Clark and John Biddle. Trinitarian theology also asserts that the one God is the three of them together, that the one God is tripersonal, that the one God in some sense contains or is composed of these, quote, persons with those persons sharing one nature or essence. What does all that mean? Good question. It bristles with problems, and different Trinitarians work them out in different ways. 
But until you add a claim about a tripersonal God in there, you may just be preaching a contradiction. The contradiction that Christ is a God, the Holy Spirit is a God, the Father is a God, then they're distinct from one another, and yet there's only one God. Or if you don't really think they're distinct from one another, you might be preaching a kind of modalism or oneness Pentecostal theology. Christ is God, Father's God, the Holy Spirit's God, there's only one God. Well, they're the same God. They're all the same as each other. Or you might be preaching a belief in three or four gods, the members of the Trinity plus the Trinity, that'd be four, or just the members of the Trinity understood as three gods. To be Trinitarian, you have to be making the claim that the three of those together are the one true God. The Trinitarian thinks the one God is the Trinity. The deity of Christ is related to all this, of course, but there have been plenty of Christians who believed in the deity of Christ in some sense who have not believed in a tripersonal God. number one mistake, and this is really the worst mistake in all of the ten mistakes, is linguistic sophistry. Sophistry means bad argumentation. The word comes from a kind of loose school that you see in ancient philosophy in the time of Plato and Aristotle. The sophists or sophists are presented in Plato's writings as not serious, people who like word games, people who like to try to run verbal circles around others. They're not considered to be serious inquirers into the truth. Linguistic sophistry are arguments that trade on obvious confusions, obvious wrong definitions, and in most cases, these could be busted out by simply consulting a lexicon or reading a little bit of careful historical scholarship. One mistake is equivocating between the small t trinity and the big t trinity. Again, the small t trinity is just a triad. It's the Father, Son, and Spirit, whatever those are. It's God, the Son of God, and God's Spirit. You might talk about the small t trinity and be a Trinitarian. Or you might talk about the small t trinity and be a Unitarian. It doesn't prejudice the case either way. You're just talking about the three as three without implying or denying that they are one God or that they're the same being or share the same essence, etc. The small t trinity, of course, can be found easily all over scripture right on the surface. The big t trinity is the tripersonal God, three, quote, persons who share one essence, which is the divine essence. This you don't see in the Bible at all, never explicitly, arguably not even implicitly. As we discussed in the last episode, maybe this hypothesis of a tripersonal God, the one God as triune, maybe this best explains what's in the scripture, but anyway, it's not explicitly taught and it's not obviously implied, that's for sure. Another lousy argument in this area is observing that there are three in the New Testament, arguably, who are called God or described as God. Therefore, Trinity. I mean, this is just a wild leap. You see this in some very famous apologists. 
The problem is that in biblical usage, beings other than the one true God can be described as gods and can be addressed as God. You see this in Hebrews 1.8. But about the Son, he says, and then he quotes a psalm, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The Son here is being addressed as God, and yet he is a human. He's one who has a God. Originally, the psalm was addressed to a king. Here, it's being applied to the Lord Jesus, to the human Messiah. That he's called God doesn't mean that he's God. Somebody who thinks that is just not realizing that the term can be used in different ways. Another obvious linguistic mistake is thinking that the New Testament confession that Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is Yahweh himself, or that Jesus is a person of the Trinity. Look, the New Testament writers cannot mean, when they say that Jesus is Lord, that he is one person within the tripersonal God. That's simply an anachronism. The idea of a triune God isn't there. It's not in that time. It's from a later time. So that can't be what they're saying. Are they saying that Jesus is God himself? Seemingly not, because they often contrast the one God with the one Lord. We did three Trinities podcast episodes on this a couple years back, episodes 14, 15, and 16, discussing 1 Corinthians 8, and specifically Paul's usage of the term Lord in reference to Jesus. Where'd they get the idea of calling Jesus Lord if he's not the Lord, if they didn't think he's Yahweh? Well, they got it from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. That psalm, often quoted in the New Testament, calls someone my Lord, again, originally a king, but now the human Messiah. This isn't Yahweh himself. This is somebody whom Yahweh is exalting to his own right hand. Now, of course, the Greek term kurios can be used in the New Testament for Yahweh himself, because this is the term that Greek translations of the Old Testament used in place of the divine name. They thought it was disrespectful somehow to say the divine name. So instead of transliterating the name Yahweh, those four consonants, they just replaced it. The Greek replacement was the Lord. And there are places in Paul where you're not entirely sure which he means. Is he talking about God or about Jesus? It's usually clear, but sometimes it's not. The general rule of thumb, I would say, is that unless the Old Testament is being quoted about God... The Lord in the epistles is the risen and exalted Jesus, the Lord Messiah. The last three examples are embarrassingly bad, and this is partly why I decided not to name names in this episode. If I made this dumb a mistake, I wouldn't want anybody to quote it. I would want them to let me know privately, but 
the people I've heard this from honestly ought to know better, but they will get up in front of evangelical groups and say that in Genesis 1, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. That that is teaching that there's more than one person in God. This is a junky old argument, and it's just not defensible. If you look in any recent commentary, Jewish, Christian, Catholic, Protestant, it will say something like this. Yeah, people used to point at this verse and say that that's evidence of the Trinity or a hint of the Trinity or something. And in past times, others have said, no, this seems to be a plural of majesty. But now we think that they didn't use the plural of majesty in ancient Hebrew. So it's probably not that. It's not like the King of England in medieval times saying, let us decree a festival or something like that. Or even Allah in the Quran sometimes talks about we and us with reference to himself, just as a magnified royal way of speaking. The commentaries will say that scholars now think that they didn't use language like that in ancient Hebrew. What they do think it is, is that God is addressing the members of his divine council, the other divine beings, the other deities, the lesser deities. Just as in the human realm, a king or an emperor or a queen is attended by a court, so the assumption was in these times that God, too, is attended by a court. A court not of humans, but of other spirits, of other, in some sense, divine beings. Of course, after God announces this to his court, he then proceeds to create humankind by himself. It uses a singular verb there. So, no, there's no hint, there's no implication that the Trinity are making humankind, that God has to have a helper here in the form of the pre-existent Son. That's just not in the text. Another embarrassingly bad argument is pointing to the word Elohim and saying, see, that's teaching that there are multiple persons in God. No, no, no. Elohim is a strange word in Hebrew. It's grammatically plural, but can be singular or plural in meaning. And the way that you tell that it's singular or plural in meaning is by looking at the verbs and the adjectives that are put with it in a sentence. We have this type of thing in English. I've done a blog post about this before. If I go out and run around in the mud, I come inside, I'll say, these pants are dirty. And yet I'm only talking about one garment. If the football team goes out and plays a game in the mud, they come back into the locker room, take off their uniforms and give them to the guy that does the team's laundry, and he says, the pants are dirty. But in that context, he's referring to multiple garments, a whole team's worth. In English, notice we said these both times, and we said are both times, so we use the plural words to go along with it, and it just has a singular or plural meaning depending on the context, and we just figure it out. We don't have a lot of words like that in English, so it doesn't really cause confusion very often. But my understanding is that in Hebrew, if God or a single God is meant, they put it with singular verbs, in other words, and if gods is meant, if that's the meaning, plural, then they put it with plural verbs and other words. So, yeah, this is translated into English as God or gods, and it's usually just made clear by the surrounding grammar, or that plus the rest of the context. This doesn't teach multiple persons in God. It doesn't imply multiple persons in God. It doesn't even hint at multiple persons in God. 
And just as bad, or maybe worse, is the claim that the Hebrew word for one, echad, means a plural unity, or a plurality in unity, or a composite or something like that. This is the word that appears in the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Any person versed in Hebrew grammar will tell you, no, that word means one. It can be applied to things which have parts or which are in some sense plural. Sure, that's true in any language. And you could also apply this to a simple or partless thing. In English, you have one subatomic particle or one fundamental particle, but you also have one football team, one country, one human body, one earth, one solar system. You can count things which have an inner complexity, whether it's parts or different aspects or different properties, and you can count things that lack various sorts of inner complexity, whether it's different properties or parts or powers or aspects. It's just silly to say that there's something special about the word for one in Hebrew, that it means a composite one or a unity and plurality or something like that. It's shameful that this should occur in any big setting. If somebody says this in a megachurch, then somebody who's been to seminary and learned Hebrew should stand up and say, excuse me, that's not true. The Shema is not asserting that Yahweh is a unity of plurality or a plurality in unity, etc. It's just asserting the uniqueness of Yahweh. Why are people so careless as this? I think it's in part because a lot of apologetics is an in-house game. It's preaching to the choir. It's in a megachurch or an evangelical conference or an evangelical seminary. And there's just no fear of saying something stupid or of handing your opponents a stick to beat you with, which is exactly what you're doing with this type of linguistic sophistry. Any informed Jewish debater, Muslim debater, or Unitarian Christian debater is going to laugh at you and point out how uninformed you are if you say that the Hebrew word Elohim or Echad teach that God is multipersonal or even that they imply it, or suggest it, or presuppose it, or kind of sort of hint at it, or gesture at it in some unclear way. Nope. If we're going to do apologetics, let's do it right. Where somebody could take a recording of the apologetics that you present to your Sunday school class, and they could play that to the best debaters on the other side, and those debaters would say, wow, that was well argued. What are we going to say in answer to that? That's how apologetics should be. It can't devolve into just telling people what they want to hear. It can't be so lazy as to assume that an argument is a good argument just because some other apologist said it. This is not the way of people who care about separating the true from the false. If you knowingly serve up these kinds of junk arguments, it may seem like it works. It might play well in this sort of circuit. It might sound impressive to uninformed people or people who aren't very smart. But some people who are considering Christianity or people who are trying to hold on to their Christian faith in the face of many attacks, some of those people are smart and are really informed and thoughtful. And it seems to me that they're either going to be unimpressed by your arguments or they're going to swallow them and then later regurgitate them. 
If you help them to found their faith or to try to defend their faith with junk arguments, and then they realize their junk arguments, you've not done them a favor. You might be accountable to God if one such as this stumbles. The topic here is the one true God. It's not an arcane subject. It's not a goofy, you know, specialist interest. We're not talking about aliens on the moon. We're not talking about arcane matters of cosmology or quantum physics. We're not talking about the deep obscurities of ancient history. This is a crucial matter. It matters to people's spiritual lives and how they relate to Jesus and God. This is a subject that needs to be taken with absolute seriousness. It's not a place to pop off, to speculate, to confidently gas in public about. Out of all subjects, this is one where it would seem most important to get it right, to argue carefully, to make inferences carefully, to realize when you're speculating, to realize when you're theorizing. Some would say, let's just read the Bible, let's just preach the Bible, let's not theorize at all. Well, I certainly understand the dislike for speculation about all this, but I don't think that we can avoid theorizing at all. When we look at the whole Bible, or at the whole New Testament, or at a whole book in the New Testament, we're always constructing this picture of what the writer is saying. And we're making inferences there. We're employing logic and human concepts. We might find ourselves using non-biblical language like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, divine aseity, and things like that. And maybe we need to talk about the Trinity, the lowercase t Trinity or the uppercase t Trinity. But the people who are really going to help us think about these things are the scholars. And not just scholars from our own little camp, not just evangelicals, not just Protestants, not just Christians, any scholars, the other apologists, not so much. At their best, they're going to specialize in a few things and then very carefully repackage arguments and claims made by other specialists. In the worst case, they're going to pose as specialists about everything or a wide range of things, and they're just going to be recycling arguments from other apologists. That's what we want to avoid if we want to come up with a case that does more than impress our few apologetics buddies. A problem with being an apologist is... You're taking a stance that assumes that you already know what you're talking about. There's a place for apologetics, and that's when you've really mastered a subject. That's when you're ready to get out there and defend Christian claims and help people to accurately understand Christian claims and sometimes to even argue for them. The problem is if you jump on a bandwagon too early, you're just going along with a crowd and you don't know what you're talking about and you're going to serve up junk arguments. On this topic, we need to stop serving up junk arguments. Better than giving a one-paragraph defense of the Trinity is to help people, for starters, see where it comes from, different ways different Christians have understood it, it being those standard creedal claims, and if you're Catholic, what the basis is for this doctrine in church tradition and official pronouncements, and if you're Protestant, what the basis is for all of this, whatever the correct understanding is in the Bible. That is the hard part. Now, maybe you're a person who's very talented in these areas, and you would like to engage in apologetics, and you're asking yourself, should I do apologetics on the Trinity? Is that something that I should really devote myself to and 
so I can come up with really good arguments and really make a compelling case, a compelling defense or a compelling case why people should believe in the Trinity, whether those are atheists or people who already believe in God. I suggest you should ask the following things. First, is the Trinity something that a person has to believe to be saved? If not, it might be better to focus on something else. Second, is the Trinity an essential Christian belief without which you would not have Christian fellowship with somebody? If it's not, if it's a speculation, if it's a theological theory like Molinism or divine timelessness, then maybe it's not worth focusing on, interesting though it may be. Third, is this your area, or is your specialty really science, history, literature, political philosophy, or some kind of activism or humanitarian service? If this is your specialty, theology, then maybe you should go for it. But let me ask you this. Have you already read the following three things? Have you read the article called Trinity, written by Dr. Harriet Baber, in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy Online. Have you read the entry called Trinity by Christian philosopher Daniel Howard Snyder in the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy? And have you read the entry called Trinity written by me in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy? Each of those summarizes recent work by serious-thinking Trinitarians trying to get clear about how the traditional formulas should be understood, how they can be understood in a defensible way, in a self-consistent way. If you're not up to studying that stuff, you probably should do apologetics about something else. You're going to have to learn about relative identity. You're going to have to learn about, quote, social Trinitarianism, and about different kinds of appeals to mystery. You're going to have to learn why some people think the metaphysics of material objects is relevant to this topic. And they're going to use them to run circles around you when you start arguments about the Trinity. And they're not going to be impressed when you try to serve them a heaping helping of cold, limp proof texts on a paper plate. Now, you might read one of those articles and say, dang, this is hard. How am I going to come up with a little one-page defense of the Trinity? Well, you know, not everything can be defended in one page, or even in ten pages. But if you've read one or more of those articles, let me ask you this. Are you now going to turn around and hide this information from the people that you're claiming to serve? Are you going to hide it from the Sunday school class? Hide it from the people that are asking you questions? If you try that, they're going to find out about it anyway. At least the smart ones are. And they're not going to be pleased with the arguments that you've been serving them. One final piece of advice before I go. I suggest that you should ask yourself, how interested in the Trinity am I, really? I hate to tell you this, but if you say very much publicly about the Trinity in front of a lot of Christians, if you go very much beyond saying that it's a mystery, that it's a paradox, that it's wonderful, it's the best thing in the world, we don't really know what it means, if you're going to go beyond that and offer your interpretation of what you think the Trinity is, that is, how you think those formulas should be understood, get ready for the rotten fruit to come your way. Or maybe something worse. Whatever you think the right model is or what the best analogy is, 
people will mock you. People will say that you're arrogant for thinking that you can understand it more than anybody else. People will get angry at you. And worse, what if you come to see that the Trinity is a speculative matter, that it's an optional belief rather than the most important thing in the world or the very beating heart of Christian belief? What if you come to think that it's not really properly grounded in the authoritative sources? You say, well, that isn't going to happen. I'm defending the historic Christian faith. I'm orthodox. I have every intention of remaining orthodox. Well, so did I. I won't get into my story now, but there's a series of blog posts I wrote on it. I'll put a link for those on the blog post for this episode. You say, well, I'm sure I'm going to discover something wonderful. I'm just going to plumb the depths of this glorious mystery, and I, I do think I can make some progress in it, and I can say something that's intelligible and helpful to people. My point is only this. Are you willing to sacrifice your social standing for the truth? Apologetics is a lot of fun when you've got the crowd cheering you. What about when you come to a conclusion that at least a vocal minority of the crowd really gets angry about? Then it's not so fun. And yet sometimes that's what the truth requires. In my view, we don't need to be concerned about the merciful God who looks kindly on our pitiful little attempts to understand him rightly and to make sense of these ancient books. The ones to be feared here are the intolerant among us. You think you've got their back by expending all this work working on this difficult issue of the Trinity. Well, they've got your back, and they're ready to put a knife in it, some of them. That's not a reason not to explore these things. Again, the knowledge is important and valuable. I'm just saying this so that you know what you're getting into. You will have opportunities to turn the other cheek, and you will need to develop the skill of arguing with angry people without getting angry. If you're going to trust God to lead you into all truth, I guess you have to trust God to help you deal with the consequences of learning more truth. As I said at the start of episode 131, apologetics is hard. In these last two episodes, I hope I've at least showed you where some of the ditches are. Some of the ditches you don't want to drive into if you're going to engage in apologetics arguments concerning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This week's thinking music has been the track Cake or Pie by Jesse Spillane. Speaking of apologists, I'm still awaiting more replies to my podcast 124 called A Challenge to Jesus is God Apologists. This interacts with the claim that seems to be made by many evangelical apologists that Jesus just is God himself, that Jesus and God are numerically one. I don't think that's right, and I think anybody who wants to say that Jesus is God or affirm the, quote, deity of Christ needs to have a response to that argument. I do hope to come back to that in a podcast sometime this year, but probably not right away. I've got some interviews lined up with some really excellent authors, and I'm really looking forward to presenting those to you in the coming weeks.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.